Hey, it's Matt Weaver here with Bible Truth Project and have another episode here with Willard. And tonight we're going to be talking about the rapture. Now, the rapture is something that um, has been talked about a lot in the last few decades. A lot of people understand uh, this type of, um, I guess, doctrine uh, that, that comes from really its origin is somewhat in the dispensational theology. So, uh, but it's interesting, it's interesting to talk about there's, different camps, different ideas, different thoughts. But I, but I think Willard kind of, um, he can walk us through some of this stuff from, from his point of view. And then I'll present some arguments, I guess, from my point of view and, uh, we'll be, have a good discussion. So thanks again, Willard, for agreeing to do this. I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what we learn, uh, from this whole experience. So thanks so much. Yes. Well, always a pleasure to have discussions and, um, sharpen each other's swords <laughs> so to speak. Uh, looking forward to it perfect so i guess from your standpoint as i understand it you would kind of hold to a traditional dispensationalist um, understanding of the rapture i guess and and so just just walk us through kind of the basics what what is a rapture what does it mean where does it get its foundation etc okay um you want me to start passage at a time or to kind of lay out? Uh, I don't know. What? All right. Well, Thessalonians, First Thessalonians uh, speaks about the Lord descending. And let me just pull that up here. The Lord himself will come down. Now, you want to pull it up on the screen or should I just go ahead and read? I can hear. Where is it at? First uh, Thessalonians four sixteen. Okay, here four sixteen, almost there. Okay, here we go. Okay, well we started fifteen. Can we start? I'm going to read, is this New King James? There we go. Awesome. Yeah, New King For James, this we yeah. say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means proceed those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So just a, a foundation overall overview of, of the rapture here in Thessalonians, he's talking about the, the, both the dead in Christ and those are that are alive and living on the earth at the time. They're going to both be called up together. And they're going to meet the Lord in the air. So you have the dead in Christ that are going to be resurrected, the righteous dead. The dead sinners will not be resurrected. So you have the dead in Christ resurrected and given new bodies. And then we which are alive here on earth are going to be changed and be given new bodies. So we'll all have new bodies and then we will go up together and meet the Lord in the air. Um. This is not the second coming, but this is him coming for his saints, commonly referred to as a rapture. Um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
uh, there are several passages that I'm going to look at. And one of those, I think it's, is it Mark or Matthew? It says that before he comes back, there's going to be a trumpet blown and he's going to gather all of his um, from the four corners of heaven, the saints from the four corners of heaven and from um, and he's going to gather them together and we're going to come back with him. So we're all going to get there before his second coming. Another thing and that is in, um, well, let's go to Isaiah 26. And I'd like to read a few verses there as well. Can you pull up Isaiah 26 and let's go maybe uh, verse 19, 20, 21, we're going to read. Here's another passage that talks about this same thing. Starting in 19. So it says, your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall rise. They shall arise. So Jesus, he is called the first fruits. He is a first fruit of the resurrection. Uh, Corinthians says it's Christ first. And then we, which are Christ at his coming here, it says, your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. Now we know that when Jesus was resurrected, many of the Old Testament saints were also resurrected. But he says here, he says, Awake and sing, ye who dwell in the dust. So those that are dead are coming alive. They are awake and sing, the call is. For your dew is like the dew of herbs. Of herbs. In the earth shall cast out the dead. Again, referring to the resurrection. Come, my people, enter into your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is passed. So there is a call to God's people to come in to their chambers, to come in. This is referring to the marriage chamber, the marriage supper of the Lamb, I believe. There's a call, come in. Until the indignation is passed. So it says, for behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Speaking about the tribulation that is coming, the earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. And it says, it goes on in verse uh, chapter 27, in that day, the, the Lord with, in that day, the Lord with his severe sword Great and strong will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisted serpent. And he goes on there and he's talking about the destruction and bringing uh, sin into subjection, destroying it from the earth. I believe referring to um, the devil being bound a thousand years uh, at the end of the tribulation period. So there's this is just a second, another passage here besides the Thessalonians. And then I want to go to the New Testament, and there's three passages I want to go there. Um, and maybe I'll just lay this out, my understanding of it. And unless if you have thoughts or questions in the process, we'll... go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm uh, okay. I'll, I'll just make some notes to, to come back to. 
Okay, so then let's go to Matthew chapter 24 next. You know which verse? Um, you know what? I'm just going to overview. Let's just pull into verse. Uh, let's do an overview of 20. You know what? Let's go into chapter 25. So first an overview, can you scroll back? Do you have 24 right above this or do you have? Yep. Yep. Okay. So in 24, in chapter 24, the disciples come to Jesus and it says, when are these things going to happen? Talking about the destruction of the temple and what's a sign of these. And Jesus teaches here in Matthew 24. And also the same question is asked in Luke chapter 21. These are parallel passages. So in Matthew 24, Jesus speaks and he answers their questions. He talks about uh, the things that are going to come to pass. And you know what? Maybe let's go. Let, let's do just a quick few minute overview. Let's go back to verse six. Well, let's, let's start at three. Let's, let's start at three. That, that, to just get the whole picture here. And as he sat in the Mount Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things, sorry, my, I have to move my, um, it's blocking my screen here. Okay, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So Jesus goes ahead and he starts talking and he's speaking to them. And where we want, I just want to highlight a few passages, a few um sections here verse six he says and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars see that you're not troubled for all these things must come to pass but the end is not yet then he goes on the nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there'll be famines and pestilence and he talks about all the things that are coming and verse eight he says all these are the beginnings of sorrows when they deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and they shall, and you shall be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many shall be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. And it says, verse 12, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will wax cold, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. That's verse 14. He says, then the end will come. And he starts talking about the tribulation. He starts talking about what is going to be happening. The, the moon turning, um, the sun not giving her light, the moon turning to blood. Let, let's, let's go down to uh, verse 29. Scroll down to verse 29 here. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give it its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. So he's talking about the tribulation period, basically from there where he says, and then cometh the end and the end of verse 14, starting in verse 15, he's talking about the tribulation period down to this point. And um, verse 30, then the sign of the, of the son of man, sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other i referred to this earlier 
So when he comes back, he's gathering his elect from the four corners of heaven. They're ready in his presence in heaven. He gathers them back. They come behind him on the white horses and is saying he's coming back and he's admired in his saint in the eyes of his saints as he's coming back. They're looking at him and watching him go and they're rejoicing at at, at what he's doing. Um, Zechariah, speaking about this, um, says that the Lord cometh and all his saints with him. Jude, speaking about this, says the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints, which is actually a quote out of the book of Enoch. So you have this here just throughout the scriptures in here that Jesus is coming back with his saints. Um, and in Thessalonians, it tells us that he comes and gets them before he comes back. Now, uh, I'm going to, if you can scroll down, let's go to chapter 25. There's a lot uh, here, but we're not going to take the time to dig through it all. But here in the first verse of chapter 25, after Jesus is talking about the tribulation, after he's talking about all this, he says, then, T-H-E-N, Referring to the time, he says, then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened to the ten virgins. And in his, in answering the question of the disciples, what is going to be the signs and when are these things going to come to pass? He speaks about the tribulation and he says that my kingdom is going to look like this at that time when the tribulation is happening, when the tribulation is happening. The kingdom of heaven is going to be likened on the ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them are wise, five were foolish. The foolish took their lamps and didn't take oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. <clears throat> Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, give, give us of your oil. You know all the story. You know the rest of it here. I'm going to just go down. They were told to go out and buy, uh, and the bridegroom came, and the ones that were ready went in, to meet, uh, went in with him, and the foolish came, and when the foolish came, in verse 11, the five foolish virgins, they knocked and they cried and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And he says, watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So this is a picture. This is a picture of the church, of God's kingdom. This is a picture of the church at the time of the tribulation. There's going to be half the church or five wise virgins that are taken into the marriage feast. There's going to be five foolish virgins that are not prepared. They do not have oil in their lamps. Uh, Holy Spirit, when Holy Spirit is referred to in the scripture, it is referred to as an anointing, the same way that oil. So the foolish virgins were Christians who were not walking in a Holy Spirit anointing. The wise virgins were walking in the Holy Spirit anointing. They had oil. They had a Holy Spirit, his presence and his anointing in their, in their soul, in their life. So 
I believe this again is a picture of the five wise virgins of the rapture. Uh, Jesus talked spoke quite a bit about watching and being prepared that we are not surprised and that we are ready and we are prepared to meet him. Now, I want to go to Luke chapter 21. And here's the mirror to chapter 24 of Matthew. It's a passage that mirrors it. Same question was asked, recorded. Um, the record of the same question being asked. And I just want to look at verse 21. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 36, chapter 21, verse 36. So we go down through chapter 21, Jesus explaining the same thing, the record that was given. And down in verse 36, Jesus tells them, he says, watch therefore at the time of the tribulation, he ends by saying this, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the son of man. So the five wise virgins, those who are dead in Christ, those who are alive and remain here prepared. We are the ones that are going to be prepared and ready have oil in our lamps, we, we are told we're to pray that we're counted whether to escape. Those that escape are going to find themselves in the presence of the Son of Man by that verse. And then one more passage I want to look at, and that's Revelation chapter 2, and you don't have to go there. I'll just refer to it. Um, Revelation chapter 2, and this is the, the, the Church of Philadelphia. So Jesus introduces himself to the Church of Philadelphia, as the one who shuts the door and no man opens it and opens the door and no man shuts it. He's, he's introduces himself to the church of Philadelphia with the same language that he talks, that he speaks about with the five wise and five foolish virgins. And he tells the church of Philadelphia, they have not denied his name and they have a little strength. And because of this, he says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the earth to try every man that dwells on the earth. I believe the church of Philadelphia is a picture of the raptured church, the end time church. He says, you have a little strength. You have not denied my name. And because of this, I'm going to keep you from the hour of temptation or the hour of trial, depending what translation it is, that's going to come on the earth to try every man that dwells in the earth. So I guess, when I look at, when I look at, I, I know I, I, I covered a lot of ground here, Matt, <laughs> but when I look at all these passages all pointing to a time when God is going to take his church out, the one that is prepared, and they're going to be with him at the marriage, in the marriage feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and they're going to return with him in Revelation 19 when he comes, comes back in power and great glory. So that's my, in a nutshell, that's that's kind of the overall passages that are pointing towards this happening. There's a lot of people that it, in some ways it's not crystal clear. We don't have a passage that says, bam, 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 this is going to happen. But it is hidden within the word. So go ahead. One, two, three, go. 
No. <laughs> so I have made some notes here. Let me just get this situated here. Uh, so one of the things is that, and I'm just going to break this down for people who aren't aren't necessarily familiar with the subject. Um, I was, you know, I'm still learning the nuances and different ideas that people have. But as far as in general, uh, there was a time that this was this type of material was very foreign to me as well. And mm-hmm. when you hear about it, it was just kind of like, you know, it's so hard to fit the pieces and the puzzles, whatever. So the basic premise is generally, uh, generally speaking to your view is, is basically the idea that before the tribulation period really gets bad or, or, and there's, everybody has, everybody looks at Daniel 70 weeks or the seven, the last seven as a time period. Okay. So there's this one final week or one final time period or seven year period. And a lot of people, the debate tends to be beginning, middle, or end, like what time frame. Uh, And if there is a tribulation period, because there's some people that don't believe necessarily in the tribulational period, um, you know, again, what, what happens at the beginning and what happens at the middle, what happens at the end. So a lot of the debate in the world, in the Christian world about eschatology is really just a timing debate. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily as much a incident debate because like, for instance, I agree with certain aspects of things that will take place because the Bible talks about them, right? You saw the mm-hmm. scriptures, etc. but timing exactly how the sequence of things can work mm-hmm. could shift a little bit left to right. And it's not necessarily salvific if, 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 mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So it's not like I, at least I don't look at it that you have to have to hold to only this view dogmatically in order to escape it's rather just being prepared understanding that if this is the case god will take care of you but my my some of the notes i did just with what you were talking about so number one the the saints in heaven that you were uh referencing which is so from a first century just is just a question mark in my mind from a first century standpoint when they're sitting there listening to jesus on temple mount he's got less than 120 followers they're sitting up there talking and in front of them is the temple um it's during uh, coming up to one of the feast days and so there's probably who knows 100,000 200,000 people down on temple mount in light of that context um the saints who who are the saints now in one sense, you could say, well, it's Christians, but a lot of that tends to be informed by replacement theology. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying, understand where that's coming from. But in that context, is it Jewish people? Is it saints? Like, obviously, pre-resurrection, there are people that get caught up. Now, that's just one of the, one of the questions. Not huge, not a huge thing. And I'm not saying that I would understand one way or the other, we tend to clearly separate Jesus and say anything like post, pre, but this is just one of those questions. Who, who are the saints or who are the elect that Jesus is referring to? Um, go ahead. Well, m- most of the time, and this is one exception, but most of the time when it's talking about the elect, I would see it as talking about the Jewish people who are going to come through the tribulation period 
without being destroyed and accept Jesus as the Messiah at the end of the tribulation. That's where I see most of the time the elect is referring to. But I believe it can also talk about speaking about the, the Gentiles who went into the tribulation period and get the victory over the mark and the number of the name and the image and don't worship who we see gathered together and being judged in Revelation 20, the first few verses right after the devil is bound for a thousand years, we see them brought out and they go into the thousand year reign, reigning on the earth as well as the raptured saints who came back with Christ. So I believe the elect could be both, but it definitely includes the Jewish people who come through the tribulation and embrace Jesus as Messiah. Um, one interesting thing, it was just an interesting thing, is the trumpet blast in heaven. It doesn't say, I mean, there's obviously the trumpet on earth, but there's a trumpet blast in heaven, which in the ancient world, that was always a, a gathering element. So anytime you have a trumpet, it was to gather people. So you know, it can also be signal a time of war. So it's interesting yep. that the theme of the shofar blowing on the earth in times of distress or to gather is something that actually is carried out in heaven at the same time. Um, and, and, and that, that he gathers them from the four corners of heaven. That's interesting. They're already there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, they're roaming around. So he's got to like bring them together. So everyone gets on board. No, I, I think what, what you said there is very good because uh, what you started out there with the other sitting in the temple or they're sending on the mount and they ask these questions and Jesus is answering them. And I believe just in Luke 21, while we did not do an overview of that passage, there's actually more clarity in that passage where Jesus speaks about um, the days of vengeance that is going to be on this people. He says on this place. And he says, then they are going to be, uh, they're going to fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive in all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That is in chapter 21, verse 24, 23 and 24. So he actually, in 21, he brings much more clarity about what he's talking about the Jewish people, about AD 70. And it says when the time of the Gentiles come is fulfilled then, and he, he changes and basically, from verse 25 and on of Luke 21, it becomes very clear what he's speaking about. And I like you brought, I like, it's important that we, that we approach a word from the Jewish context, from the Jewish, what they understood, what their questions were, and him answering the questions. So, yeah, in, in Luke 21, we didn't really do an overview of the passage, but he actually answers it much more, with much more clarity particular to the Jewish people. Yeah, I just think it's an important thing to, to, to like, if you're going to understand the prophetic texts, you, you cannot remove, uh, I'm not saying you, I'm just saying in general, you, we can't yeah. remove the Jewish um, nature of, of, yeah. of the events because it's surrounding Jerusalem and surrounding Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, believers, Gentiles, I mean, they're part of the picture, but they're not necessarily the focus. Um, the other thing was the timing of the resurrection, which is um, 
I guess I could just give you a little rundown. I would basically agree with basic context. So timing is the only thing I would say that I would hold a little bit different view. I would be as of now, and, and, and it's hard. So there's, so you would hold to uh, pre-tribulational, which would be before the seven years, or are you kind of in the midpoint, or wh where do you where do you put this being caught away? Is this okay. very good question? I would actually put it. Um, Thessalonians says that the man of sin is going to be revealed first. So, I believe that many. Are, and unfortunately, you have a lot of loonies who are calling everybody that that has any resemblance yeah. to the man of sin, calling him the Antichrist. I mean, right. it's crazy the amount of people that have been uh, called the Antichrist already. But I really believe it'll become fairly obvious before the rapture. Uh, the man of sin is going to be revealed and it's going to become fairly obvious. But um, I believe in a pre-wrath. Not necessarily the devil's wrath, but pre-God's wrath. So I would say more than likely somewhere in the middle. Okay. I would I would also hold to a, a most likely pre-wrath, possibly post-tribulational view. Um, I think there's more evidence pointing to a pre-wrath than there is a post-trib um, but at the same time, post-trib could also be a thing. It just all depends how long the last day is. Like, cause I think the tricky part is that in Revelation, we have the, the chimeric scorpions coming out of the abyss and they punish people for five months. Well, if that's, you know, so there's a question, is that the devil's wrath or is that God's wrath? In one sense, God's day of vengeance is a day. It's very clear in prophecy. It speaks about a day, a day, a day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of vengeance, the day of recompense. The you know, there's all these titles, and it's always referring to, uh, generally speaking, day. Um, you know, which is in Hebrew is very clear. It's day. Okay, it's not necessarily a metaphor for multiple days. It seems to be a 24-hour period where God really dumps out His wrath. But at the same time, there's a little bit of language in Revelation that could indicate that there might be some time there. That's why I keep an open mind. But I do, I do believe at the end of the day, we 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 get pulled out pre-wrath of or God's wrath. Um, and and I was just coming back to well, some people pointed to I think it's Matthew 25. You didn't bring it up. Good for you. The <laughs> two in the field, one being taken. I think maybe that's Luke. But, um, and that's a horrible one for a rapture because the people that are being pulled are the terrors, not the people, just for those who want to go to that scripture. That is not speaking about the rapture. But where we often get the word, and this is why I do believe in it, is, is harpazo, which is a Greek word that we find in Thessalonians um, 4 in 16. It basically, Paul is saying, or in verse 17, but it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, with the trump, which you read that verse. Then it says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. That caught up is harpazo. Mm -hmm. And it basically means to seize, to catch, to pluck, to pull, or take mm -hmm. by force. So there's this, there's this just forceful gathering mm -hmm. that will take place. I tend to see that more that we are caught up with him to, if you will, ride with him as mm -hmm. he enters at the same time. Um, there could be a feast in heaven. I know some people look at that, that we're up there feasting for a while while, 
you know, the inhabitants of the earth are getting pummeled. Um, but I tend to see more the language of the feast taking place at the marriage covenant uh, or the, the you know, the renewal of the covenant in Jerusalem after the purging and the cleansing and the judgment. It's just a small difference. I, I understand where you're coming from. That could be a possibility where all of those who are righteous are gathered together in the heavenlies and we are joined in Messiah and there's this banquet that takes place in the heavens before we come back in triumphal entry. That's a possibility, but I would tend to see in the prophets more talking about after the spoil, after the judgment, then there's a time of celebration. And, small and small difference. That, that is a small difference, and yet I believe that it, it, it fits right in with this because the, the time of celebration, the time of of uh, the earth flourishing, the deserts blooming Eden is restored. during the thousand year reign. Amen. And that's a time when, when the devil and sin is removed from the earth. So it will be a time of just absolute uh, uh, explosive uh, growth and blessing on this earth. I believe in population growth. Even. <coughs> one, one of the things that, you know, when, when, God was came to Abraham and said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham said, far be it from you to destroy the righteous with the wicked. So there is a principle, far be it from God to destroy righteous with the wicked. I do not believe that we, as his sheep, will go through the wrath of the shepherd. Furthermore, the passages that I read, Luke 21, he says we're to pray that we're counted worthy to escape. Okay? So you're taken out before. Revelation 2, verse 7, he says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of temptation. Isaiah 26, he says, come in and hide until the wrath is over. So every one of these passages have a clear message of removal prior to something that is very uh, severe. Yeah. You know, kind of goes with that. So something yeah. for you to put in your theological pipe and smoke. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't necessarily disagree. I would, I would, I would say I probably lessen the effect of the principle only because of the, there's plenty of text. Uh, to wrestle with. I understand it and I appreciate mm -hmm. the principle. Yeah. I just, it's harder to, when you're dealing with uh, actual narrative, to use a principle to as your, as your evidence versus actually mm -hmm. scripture. But I understand the principle. I understand that just like in Exodus, God was using all sorts of judgment on the nations around Israel or around, you know, they were in captivity, but as far as uh, Egypt was suffering horrible calamity, and God protected his people. So there is precedent for that kind of reasoning. Um, and I agree with the warnings. You know, Jesus does give warnings. So when you see, like, certain things happening, when you see the abomination, for instance, or when you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, get out. Don't mm -hmm. stick around. Don't think somehow it's going to get better right away. It's just not. It's going to be a horrible, a horrible time. Um, and so from that standpoint, I 100% agree that, look, people that are attentive, people that are listening, people that understand the scriptures, we're going to recognize the warning and go, just like in 70 AD. If you 
if you had known Jesus' warning and you saw Jerusalem surrounded by the Roman Empire and Titus riding his horse, you know, they would have, the believers would have thought this is the warning of Jesus, which I agree probably holds a dual, dual, dual fulfillment. You would have got out. And in, inexplicably, Titus puts a stay on the destruction of the city to let anybody out before he goes in. He, what is it? What is it? Three day period or whatever it was. And so those who would have heard that message would have gotten out. I think probably a similar thing takes place where there is an escape route um, that, that is supernaturally enabled to, for those who know can get out. Uh, and, and, and truth be told, that could be at the same time Harpazo takes place or the being caught up just before God says, okay, this is enough. But there's a little bit of, that's where a little bit of the, we don't know for sure until it happens thing comes into play. And I don't get too dogmatic. I, I can accept your position as, okay, that will happen. Like, I want to know that because if that happens that way, I need to know what's going to happen. Or if it's a different position, I like to know that as well. Um, but yeah, hundred percent. Uh, next one is the tribulation. Just for clarity's sake, in Scripture, um, this is a term the Christians throw around a lot. And unfortunately, people tend to think of it as a Christian problem and as a, uh, how do I phrase this, right? As a, somehow it is a you know, pressure or persecution of Christians. Although that will be part of it, the focus in the prophetic texts are really the pressure against Israel and Jacob. Now, of course, us being believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to come under pressure in a global standpoint. But the, the real severe pressure, I believe, is actually the elect, is actually the Jewish people. And many of them will not escape. Many of them will be killed. According to Isaiah, it's what, two-thirds or whatever. Um, and so with that, we have to understand this is a Jewish persecution that will also test us uh, because we have to understand God's going to bring these streams together again, okay? Gentile believers, and we understand Messiah were one, but God called the Jewish people for a specific purpose. So these streams, after Jesus comes back, you're not going to have necessarily, I don't believe, Jew, uh, how would you say this? Judaism and Christianity as separate uh, belief systems. You're going to have Messianic Judaism, if you will. It's going to merge the the Abrahamic faith together under Amen. Messiah the way it's supposed to be. So it's, and it's, that's exactly what Jesus did. He broke down the middle wall of partition. He's yeah. made us one. Yeah. Now it's, they're it's, not part of us because they're a non-belief. Yeah. But someday they will be. They will be. They yeah. will be. And not only will they be, that's how actually my belief is the 144,000, which a lot of people wrestle over. To me, that they're really just the priests uh if you if you study ezekiel's temple there is the levites are called out again so just my opinion the 144,000 are special people that god calls out of each tribe to serve in the millennial temple but it's just my opinion. you know on you you hit a couple of very interesting points there so uh one of the things so the church of philadelphia said i'm going to keep you from the art temptation the church of laodicea he says go and buy gold that is tried in the fire. So the five foolish virgins, they were told to go out to them that sell and buy. And buying is not something that you just 
go out and you have money in your pocket, so you give it and in exchange. No, this is a process of a trial. This is a process of walking the spirit. This is a process of yielding to the spirit, of going through trial, fiery trials. And I guess that's where I would say, I would say you have enough of wording like that towards the church, uh, Laodicea particularly. I mean, he tells others, I'm, he tells the church of uh, Pergamos, he says, if you don't repent, he says, I'm going to come and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. I believe the church of Pergamos is going to actually be the religious arm of the Antichrist. And when he comes back and fights against the Antichrist, he's going to take the beast and the false prophet. He's going to throw him directly into hell. Even the devil doesn't get hit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Directly into the lake of fire. The devil only be, is put in the pit right. at the great white throne judgment is when right. death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire. Lake of fire is eternal, right. the eternal state. Yeah. The false prophet is thrown in there directly. Anyways, so that, that's one thing. The other, the other um, back to this, um, what you said about the 144,000 and, and the Gentile age, the Jewish age, you are right. The, the tribulation period is a time of Jacob's trouble. And the time of the, of the Gentiles has come to an end. The time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled and God changes and shifts. And because of his promise to the fathers, Romans tells us, it's because of the father's sakes, for the father's sake, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the father's sakes, that he goes back to the Jewish people and he begins to pull them back, it's Romans 11, and deals with them and brings them back into that covenant. But he's going to take them through the fire, the time of Jacob's trouble, this tribulation. He's mainly working with the Jewish people. Now, in that, there is a transition we need to understand. And maybe I, I don't know if I ever explain, uh, told you my, my understanding of this. So Jesus died. Jesus was born about B.C. 3. He died right around eight, uh, 30 A.D. He's 33 years old. The destruction of Jerusalem was in 70, about 40 years after Jesus' death. So you had a 40-year period where there was still people going into the temple and part of the temple worship, and there was a justification through that. Those people in Ephesus that Paul met, 12 men, first was Apollos and then 12 men that didn't know anything but the baptism of repentance by John the Baptist. I believe those men were walking with a clear conscience before God and they were justified, even though they did not know that there was an infilling of the Holy Spirit or that Jesus the Messiah died for their sins. I believe the same way there was still justification up to the time the temple was destroyed. There was a justification to be had through the temple worship. Now, you might think I'm, I'm uh, I mean, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews is written in 8068. And they were said, we were, were the, the people, the Hebrew people were told, says, look, this thing is waxing old. It's folding up. It's coming to an end. There's not going to be justification through temple worship no longer. And there was a call and a, an establishment that Jesus is the high priest. He is the priest of a better covenant. And that this new covenant is part of God's plan 
from the very foundation. And that's all laid out very clearly in the book of Hebrews. So I like to look at it this way. From Jesus' death in AD 30, 30 AD, for the next 40 years, until the temple was destroyed, there was a transition of the gospel going from the Jewish people, particularly the Jewish people, the pouring outpouring in Pentecost. Then you had the call, uh, the, the, the vision that Peter had of the sheep coming down with unclean animals. You had Paul's call to the Gentiles. You had that shift that was happening. You had the, the cradle of Christianity that was in the Jerusalem church was disappearing. Is it? 66 AD, basically the Jerusalem church, because of what was happening, uh, basically left Jerusalem. And the church began to be uh, characterized by Antioch, a very Gentile church. And the New, the, the New Testament church, or the early church, it shifted. So you had that shift there from, from the Jewish to going to the Gentiles. Now let's turn that and let's come into the tribulation period. At the beginning of the tribulation period, you had 144,000 that are sealed with the seal of God on their forehead. Later on, they are, they're, they're all Jews. Later on, they are shown before the throne of God. And they are told that these are the first fruits unto God. The first fruits of what? The first fruits of Israel coming back to God. We're... We're not, told how, we're not told how they get into heaven, but they are shown on earth. And the next time they're shown, they are in heaven standing before God's throne. Uh, some people, they say they have a mini ra a rapture. The Jewish people have their own rapture. I don't know. Actually, they might even be raptured with the church. Uh, I don't know. But you have the 144,000 there. When you go to Revelation 10... We have the end of the Gentile age. It comes to an end at the end of the tribulation period. So Revelation 10, we have an angel come down from heaven. He puts his one foot on land, his one foot on sea. He raises his hand to heaven and he swears that time shall be no longer. What time? He says that the, the mystery spoken by the Gentile, by the prophets, should be finished it's very clear in the new testament that what the mystery was that was spoken by the prophets it was hid from the prophets they spoke about it they spoke about things they did not understand and paul reaffirms that again and again throughout the new testament that this mystery is a gentile age so this angel he's announcing that the mystery of god is finished the gentile age is done and it says that this happens in the hour when the seventh trumpet began to sound that this angel comes down and does that. In the hour he begins to sound. When the seventh trumpet is sounded, the announcement is made that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. Basically, the seventh, uh, the seventh trumpet is announcing the beginning of the thousand-year reign. And just before that, at the very end of the tribulation period, this angel comes down and says, the Gentile age is finished. So we have basically from the beginning of the tribulation period where the 144,000 are sealed, that's the first fruits of Israel. And you have a transition that God, the Gentile age diminishes and the, and the, and the Jewish age increases to the end of the tribulation period that the Gentile age comes to a close. Now, I don't know. I, I, I know I put up. 
I wrapped a lot of stuff in <laughs> what I just said. Um, do you follow? Yeah. Did, did I? Yeah, I've I've heard it explained in the in the sense that some people look at it, and I think it's a little bit uh, bulkier and clunkier than the way you the way you laid it out. But uh, like a lot of dispensationalists to say it's kind of like a train, you know. So Israel was on the tracks, and then when Jesus came, Israel went off the tracks, and then the church was put on the tracks, and the church went until the time of the end where the the church was taken off the tracks and Israel was put back on the tracks mm -hmm. to fulfill time. And I mean, I understand it to, to a degree, but I still like that to me, that kind of, not yours, but I'm saying like that mm -hmm. does seem to be somewhat replacement uh, theology. Mm -hmm. See, the, the thing that we can't see, and I, I, and I don't know, I, I realize that Jesus is the only way, you know, he's the Messiah. He's the only way. Like there mm -hmm. is no other way to be saved. There's no other way to get to the Father. I understand that 100%. But the question is, and it's it's not necessarily related to the rapture, but it's just a thought, is I don't know what happens right after death. You know, God could in his mercy decide to reveal himself to every person to ultimately ask them, do they want to be with him or don't they? Mm -hmm. He might. I don't know if he does or not. But he, I, I would certainly think he has the right to. Mm -hmm. So could it be, you know, that Jewish people when they leave this world are confronted with their Messiah and accept him. Mm -hmm. Don't know. I know Paul said all Israel will be saved. He wasn't referring to the two thirds when he said that he said all Israel. So I, is he, was he, is know. he referring to the Israel that is remaining? Well, that's what a lot of people that, that a lot of people that try to think of, you know, the before death, fate if you will or decision however you want to how you want to use that word would would take that camp saying well it's all of the of the third that survive but paul doesn't say that paul says all israel that's true and so what i don't know and i'm not saying that paul is saying that i'm not trying to read into scripture it's just one of those questions i've always had is what would limit jesus ultimately i don't know that you leaving this body to go into a heavenly body um like Jesus can give your, technically, he could appear to you in your last moments and reveal himself and, and ask, do you want me or do you reject me? And, and you know, and, when he says that we're going to receive the rewards for the deeds done in the body, mm -hmm. there's still a rewards judgment. Oh, yeah. That's not, sal that's not salvation in the sense of, look, Righteous or unrighteous, Jesus is going to resurrect everyone. Yeah, yeah. Every human who has ever lived, as I understand it, will experience resurrection. The, the righteous will experience it as coming. The unrighteous will experience it at the end of the age, uh, just in time for the white throne judgment, or actually for the white throne judgment. And, and the reason that that's actually, I'm gonna, I've never really heard a lot of preachers talk about that, but I thought about that one day. I was like, you know, wait a minute. You mean every person who has ever lived will actually get to experience the resurrected body of Jesus, like physically, like their body will be resurrected. Everybody's going to experience that. And the last people... Okay. Now they've been res because we were all born in born under Adam. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. We all have the body of Adam, mm -hmm. but we will all be given the body of Jesus, which is the resurrected body. He's going to be this new father, if you will. Okay. But so at that moment, 
God judges them and they experience they experience the lake of fire in the resurrected body. And it's called the second death. Ooh. So okay. That's a different that's a little different. I, I never even thought of that. <laughs> um what I would have how I would have viewed that is that at the resurrection, we're going to be given our new bodies. And yeah, back to that. The Bible sp clearly speaks about the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. Mm -hmm. um, and it splits it up. It's interesting that, that he, that he did in, in mentioning them, and he mentions it as if it's two different events because it is. Okay. Um, but I would have said that the, the righteous are going to receive a new body and the wicked their souls are going to come to, but not necessarily their bodies. Um, but it's a resurrection. It's a resurrection. And it's another death. Now, you're right. What does the death of the resurrected body look like? Blessed and, blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. Upon him, the second death shall have no part. So, there's, is there, I, I guess that idea of, of having the same body. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to have to chew about that. Chew. That's <laughs> going to be I'm, my theological fight. <laughs> I'm not saying that I have this great revelation. It was just something that hit me one day as I was thinking about it. It's actually, I was writing my book mm -hmm. and I was studying and it just hit me. It's like, wait a minute. So all will be, so in uh, the part where it talks about the resurrection of the flesh, you know, or Paul yeah. talks about the flesh of Adam, or he's talking about the body types. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about, you know, Messiah or the resurrection, you know, it's a difference, if you will, it's a, our body's a seed for that um, ultimate mm -hmm. resurrection, mm -hmm. which we can see that Jesus did. So Jesus regenerated. Uh, and I just explained to somebody on Saturday in a Bible study I was at. So for instance, you know, we have a body of sin, which we inherited from our parents. Mm -hmm. Okay. So our parents gave us this body and this body unfortunately has the faults of Adam and Eve. The original parents so we still bear the body of mom and dad adam and eve and the stuff that goes with that but jesus is going to resurrect the body mm -hmm. and it's a second man adam so there's another adam or another mm -hmm. father mm -hmm. who will resurrect the whole world after his own order mm -hmm. and then it was like Okay, so the just are first, and they'll experience the thousand years the way God wanted, and the unjust will experience resurrection just before they're judged forever. Which to me, then I look at Gehenna, and I was like, you know, there's some people that talk about annihilation or whatever. It's kind of off topic, but but it to me all of a sudden is like, but they're in resurrected immortal bodies. How are they going to die? It doesn't seem like they will, because they'll have been given immortality but in the space they wanted it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So there will be a resurrection of life, resurrection of damnation. The resurrection of life is going to be eternal life. Um, and here comes a great debate. Is there such a thing as eternal death? Yeah. Well, I, look, I mean, I, you know, there's a good case. I hope, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say I hope, but I, I could see God having the mercy to in, annihilate, I guess, which is a state of being, at least he's going to, but, but scripture seems to somewhat point to the fact that no, it's a, it's a perpetual burning holding place. 
and oh. especially and that's the lake of fire and it was prepared yep. for the devil and his angels yep. it wasn't even prepared for people yeah well there's a there's a it's for the devil and his angels and there's a reference and i can't I, I can't find it i was looking for it the other day i think it's in isaiah that talks about um the the concept okay and it being a, a memorial outside that people that go to jerusalem will pass by it gives this image of of that on the new earth there will be you'll see it as a visible reminder of what rebellion did it's not like it'll disappear and everything's going to be glorious right there'll be that physical reminder uh pit that you'll be able to see the judgment of the rebellious and and it'll be it'll keep us i think on the straight and narrow uh one of the other things um you know, you brought up the whole cloud rider thing, which is if you look at uh, when Jesus was in front of uh, Caiaphas, he brings that up. You'll be you'll see the son of man riding on the clouds of heaven. It was that that got him crucified because mm -hmm. they knew that that's in Daniel. That's God. Mm -hmm. Right. The ancient of days was writing or no, the, the son of man was writing on the clouds and coming to the ancient of days. And the ancient days gave him authority and he claims to be the cloud rider. And it, that the high priest rent his clothes and said blasphemy and commits him to you know to be uh, killed, which is or which is very um, how would you say it's very like this is what I look at like when you look at Antichrist, it's one of the biggest signs that I see that the he does about everything that the Messiah is supposed to do as I see it in Scripture. Okay, about everything except he doesn't ride the clouds. Mm -hmm. There's only one who can do that, and that's Jesus. Um, the other one mm -hmm. is, uh, the next one on my list is the, I don't know you part that you read in Matthew 25. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's, and there's an, there's a, in Jewish excommunication, they've done this for centuries. That is how they say to somebody like, uh, that's how they would excommunicate somebody. So when mm -hmm. they're standing in front of, um, Jesus, for instance, and he makes the term, I never knew you. Mm -hmm. could very likely be in that tradition of excommunication. In other words, you were not of me and I never knew you. It doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus doesn't know them, but it means that, that Jesus has cut them off because of, because of their heart. I don't know. Yeah. Lack of connection of not having oil, not yeah. having the Holy spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the virgins question is important too, because we, we tend to think of course, from our worldview, the virgins, Christians, probably what's in view um the question could be also jewish people innocent um jews who like according to daniel there's going to be jews in jerusalem who who stand their ground who don't to who don't give in and obviously isaiah says a third will come through the fire so i think it's also important to note that virgins isn't necessarily just talking about christians i think it could also refer to jewish people but it's anybody as I would understand in that context, it's anybody who is anticipating the Lord, the day of the Lord, who is prepared for the day of the Lord. And the, and the bride of Christ is a chaste virgin. Yep. It's someone who, it's, it's those who have kept themselves to Christ. Yep. Yeah, the bride of Messiah is his covenant congregation. Mm -hmm. And that's composed of Jew, Gentile, and the whole nine yards. Yeah. Not... Yep. I only reason I bring that emphasis is because so many people want to separate. It. It's like, well, yeah. church no. here, Jew here. No, 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 no. It's, yeah. it's Messiah's body. It's Messiah's Amen. assembly. Mm -hmm. 
he's broken down that middle wall separation, that partition, and he's made us one in him. That's right. And that is never going to, never again going to be separated. The only reason that G, that God goes back and deals with Israel during the tribulation period and refines them and brings them to himself is all because of his covenant with the fathers. It's for the father's sake. Amen. Amen. So here, here's an interesting thing. <laughs> I, I hear people say, well, when, when these things start to happen, the first thing I'm going to do is get over to Israel as fast as I can. I'm like, hello, <laughs> where do you get that? Or another thing is, you know, well, our, 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 you know, our brethren, the Jews, you know, they're in Israel today. You know what? I would wish it would be our brethren. I mean, I love the Jewish people. But they are in unbelief. They are our brethren when they embrace Jesus as Messiah. I guess you could say they're stepbrothers. Step <laughs> no, yeah. I don't know. I think, I think there's a lot of confusion about that because then pe there's other people that respond and say, well, they're not our brethren. They're not Christians. Well, I think they are our brethren in the sense that the, the, the Jewish and the Abrahamic faith Again, Romans, Abraham is the father of us all. Yep. So in, in a sense, they are our brethren. And yet, because they are in unbelief, um, they are cut off from the source of life. Anyways, I think on that thing, there's a lot of, there's this confusion sometimes. Yeah, I what think, people mean. Well, yeah, and I think that's actually an important thing to bring up and discuss. I mean, I've i've tried to wrap my head around that you know 15 different ways um because because you want to approach the issue with sensitivity because you have mm -hmm. uh the situation like the holocaust so if you go to israel today mm -hmm. and they ask you well what are you to say you're a christian is kind of like it's not as bad as it used to be um but it is ultimately their thoughts go to orthodox and they go to all the heinous things that the catholic church has done to the jews over the years or the orthodox or etc it's a very sensitive issue they really don't have an issue per i mean of course they have an issue but when you reframe it that we are ones who believe the messiah has come mm -hmm. that is actually kind of a different message to them than christianity because they look at christianity as a separate religion just like islam islam yep. now most of them who are not as orthodox would would consider us believing if you will kind of the same god um, Jews, Christians, and, and, and Muslims. The way I approach that issue is more like this. Um, they are Jesus's brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. Okay, They are of that household. They are Abraham's descendants. Mm -hmm. And we also, by faith, are children of Abraham. So in mm -hmm. that sense, there's a family connection. Mm -hmm. However, however, just have family connection does not mean that you are an inheritor of salvation. Salvation is something, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, that you get when you receive Messiah and accept what he is doing, has done, uh, etc. And so, in one sense, you can say, yes, there are brothers, but not in the sense of fellowship of faith, because they don't share in the fellowship of Messiah. Now, if they share in the fellowship, they are true brothers and sisters because they're one in Messiah. But in the sense of brothers and sisters, in the sense that they're children of Abraham, yeah, I can understand from that context. I, I, it's, it's a, it is a touchy issue, and um, it's one of those things you just have to 
balanced, but not overstate. Like I'm not one of those who yeah. will yeah. go to a Jewish person, in my opinion. I mean, you have to always approach this carefully, but you know, if they say, well, can I go to heaven? Well, I say, well, ultimately that's not my decision. Okay. Yeah. But there's a Jewish Messiah who came to earth, who did what the prophet said in Isaiah 53, he gave his life, yeah. etc. Right. Um, as a, as a, as a atonement for iniquity. Right. And not only that, ritually speaking, the temple's been, it was destroyed in 70 AD and Jewish people have been ritually impure ever since then. Mm -hmm. Um, technically according to scripture to be righteous before God, you have to sacrifice. So Jesus being a sacrifice or atonement, if you will, as a righteous person, as somebody who is a substitutionary sacrifice or a substitutionary, uh, atonement by way of right. righteousness. And they understand right. that concept. Um, that is what makes us righteous. So our faith, our emunah in Hebrew, uh, in Yeshua is what makes us righteous because he was the most righteous man who ever lived. And it's a, it's a nuanced discussion conversation, but there is only one way. There's only one to get, when, when we get to the father, that is through Yeshua there. I'll say this. There was a, there was a near death experience. I was listening to of a Jewish individual, a young man who was in, he was not observant. And he's from Israel. This happened, I think, two or three years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, he died and he went to Gan Eden uh, or the Garden of Eden. But, but it really struck me because he saw himself, and as I remember this incident, he saw himself in the lowest part of Gan Eden. And there's these higher levels, but he couldn't get there because he'd be really righteous to get there. And it's interesting because a lot of times when you hear Christian testimonies, they land and they're outside the city, the city of God, which I see is, is on the top of the mountain. Mm -hmm. So some people, that might stretch some people, but as I understand the after, the, the world that we can't see, the unseen realm, which is the where the spirits go uh, when they leave these bodies, you know, there is probably levels... <laughs> that people attain to. So some might be righteous by their works, but they could never enter the throne of God. They could never enter the throne of God. And there's others in a, in a lower sense who experience the deepest depths of hell, areas that weren't even built for them. And I don't understand that. All. I'm not going to claim like I do, but it struck me that even in, in, in their experiences, what, what Christians experience is the presence of God. And that's something that, in his experience, he couldn't because that's so holy and so um, unbelievable and unattainable. You have to be so righteous to get into the presence of God. I just, it was intriguing to me. So Revelation 22, it talks about the he about heaven and all that. And then it says, blessed are those who do his commandments and they that have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. People will be there that do not have the right to the tree of life. Because it says, but outside are dogs. Outside the city are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral. Um, I mean, where you just went, I, I, I look at that sometimes and, I, and it's, it's beyond me. And I'm just glad that I'm not judge. And I know that God <laughs> is good and that he's righteous. And, but I read these things and it says, well, not everybody that's there is going to have right to the tree of life, or is it talking about us? When we get there, we'll have right, and if we don't get there, no. we won't have right. No, and it says without. Right. Is that talking about those that are in the lake of fire? Without no, no. are there are the warmongers and the dogs? 
here's my hypothesis. I'll try to make it as quick as I can. This is a, so I've been studying this because I want to write a book about it. I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with it or not, but I've, I've studied enough that I, I'm comfortable with the basic hypothesis. And that is when the, when the world was created, God created heaven and earth. Okay. And then he planted the garden, the garden. And I've, I think I've gone down this, this road with you before, but the garden of Eden, Gun Eden is, is the pattern in the prof in prophetic scripture for heaven. Okay, so when you you hear descriptions of heaven, you're hearing Garden of Eden. I mean, it's just in the Jewish mind, that is synonymous. So Gan Eden and uh, heaven, Christian heaven is is like the same concept. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason that that's important is because we actually hear in scripture that same thread. So the one thing that I look at is when in the Septuagint, when it talks about Garden of Eden, it uses the word paradisios, which is paradise uh, or paradisos. I look at the exact pronunciation. But if you fast forward to the New Testament, when Jesus is on the cross with the thief, he says that he says this day you'll be with me in paradisios. Paradise. And not only that, Paul says, I knew a man who was caught up in the third heaven into paradisios. And later in Revelation, the tree of life, which is in the paradisios of God. So there's a connection with Eden in the mind of the ancient. And I really, when you look at the pattern, this is what I'm hypothesizing happened. So when God created the earth, he created the earth, he created man, then he created the garden. A lot of people don't think about that. It was the last thing that God created. Now he created the space, heaven, or the heavens, but and he created Eretz, the earth, but the last thing that God actually created was the garden. Mm -hmm. So the garden was more fantastic than anything else that he created. He learned from all of what he had created before that and made the most beautiful place, right? And he fixed that to a specific point, position. Mm -hmm. Well, there was rebellion. God throws out humans out of the garden, back onto the earth, mm -hmm. and the angels have blocked the way of access. It would indicate potentially, and this is uh, one of the other people I just interviewed wrote a book, and it brings up the same points. That's why I was so thrilled when I when I read her book. Is I was I debated whether I should even write a book because when I found the book, pretty much all the points I was going to raise were <laughs> covered by her book, <laughs> which was kind of a bummer. But <laughs> but um, but still. If you look at that pattern, it appears that the flood had a dramatic effect on the earth. Mm -hmm. It fundamentally mm -hmm. changed the whole structure from mm -hmm. the spiritual to the physical. You now seemingly had a world that was the spiritual was separated from the physical. Mm -hmm. Before, there was a mingling of spirit yep. beings in yep. a way that just doesn't seem feasible in this world. And, and that's where, you know, when, when God took the tree of life, in the garden and he protected it by cherubs by angels that protected so that no man would eat that tree of life did that did those well then later on it says the sons of man as sons of god went into the daughters of men they seen that they were beautiful went into the daughters of men were those the angels that were guarding the tree of life so you have this whole thing in the pre-flood that there's there's things there that that we just we don't understand that yeah, the, well, the the physical and the spiritual world interacting yeah. was very clearly yeah. it was it was normal back then 
it would it would well it's still normal today it's just that our eyes are blinded right it would I mean, seem it's... to it would seem to me that where god dwells is a is a mountain according to scripture it's a holy mm -hmm. mountain mm -hmm. and it's a mountain that i believe is in eden okay mm -hmm. so it's in paradise and i don't mm -hmm. believe it actually went anywhere i think god veiled us from seeing the physical reality of his holy place his dwelling place and he put the cherubs and the interesting thing about cherubs is cherubs are throne guardians they're not just miscellaneous angels so mm -hmm. when he puts cherubim you know cherubs guarding the access to eden that's throne language that's not that's not talking yeah. about just the willy-nilly garden that's protecting the presence of god well if you fast forward so the first thing that happens after the flood is God wants the pattern to remain. So he, 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 uh, so if you look at like, for instance, in the near East, ancient Mesopotamia, et cetera, they started immediately after the flood. What was the first thing Nimrod did build a tower, mm -hmm. right? The name of the city from, from that forward was known as Babylon, which mm -hmm. is called gate of the gods. Bab is gate mm -hmm. Elyon, God, right? So mm -hmm. Babylon, Babylon, what were they doing? They were building a tower. They wanted their own cosmic mountain. And from that point on, you find pyramids all over the world. Same pattern, same spiritual high places, right? And, and, and it's the same thing today. Oh, 100%. And not only that, if you look at the Egypt one, in Giza, there's a sphinx that sits on the east side, protecting the access to the, to the pyramid. It's just like straight out of Eden, right? And then... Uh, and what you see, I think what happens in the last days is not necessarily, uh, I think it's actually just a manifestation of Eden back on earth. Like, in other words, we'll see Eden again materialize. And what happens is this massive earthquake takes place. And there's a huge upheaval that takes place in the Mediterranean or in Israel that creates a plane. And it's there that the city of God, or that's there that the preparation begins Okay, but on the south side of that preparation, there's an 11 by 11 mile section that's prepared for as the city. The temple is further north. The city is to the south. And then in Revelation, it says that New Jerusalem will come down out of heaven. Mm -hmm. So it seems to be that Eden will again materialize. So what is a spiritual reality today? Like I think if we pass, we probably go to Eden, paradise, and we get to experience it. But it will again fuse with earth. And God's and throne that, will again be visible on earth. That that paradise was in the lower parts of, you had paradise within uh, Sheol, the place of the dead. You had paradise in Hades, the righteous dead, wicked dead. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus in went the grave, down, he, which delivered, is, yep. he delivered paradise. He took paradise into God's presence. And someday that's going to come back down here and fuse with the earth again. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, the spiritual connotation is that the ancients, so the, under the waters, under the seas, and this is part of the stuff I want to write in the book yep. if, I, if I may decide to do it. Even the Bible alludes to it in, in, uh, in, I think it's Isaiah 28, talks about the primordial ruins that are in the bottom of the depth. Like there's these, there are ruins that, that archaeologists have found in like the Mediterranean basin under the water. Yep. And it's like, are you kidding me? Their city is under there? And I really think, I wonder if this is what happened, is when God sent the flood, he destroyed the world order that we knew it, uh, that was before. And the the spirits of those 
people who were in those lower land cities, okay, the bodies died, but the spirits now became entrapped in the places where they were judged. And it, the, the reason I think that there could be merit to that is the fact that when Jesus cast the demons out of the Gadarenes and threw them into the pigs, what did the pigs run to? In the sea. Why? And that's exactly the thing they didn't want. They ran home. Yeah. <laughs> they went down into the judgment the way they're supposed to. They want to get out. There's two places in Scripture. There's the, the sea and there's the desert. Those are the two places where you, you'll find evil spirits, their homes are. It's where the devastation takes place. And they didn't want Jesus to send them into the deep. No. But it's their home. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Very interesting. <laughs> got, yep. off, got off track. Good for me. <laughs> All right. Uh, any other thoughts on the rapture? And I think we can call this session an end. No, I, um, not right off. I, I know there's other passages, you know, we could have looked at the resurrection in, uh, first Corinthians 15. There's a lot that is said there. Um, but it all meshes with what we discussed. Um, you know, Christ, the first fruits afterwards, we, which are Christ at his coming. Um, you know, I think the big thing is here, two things. We had mentioned fire. Oh, well, smoke alarms are going off. Well, I'm never <laughs> gonna have to wrap it up. <laughs> it's the rapture. Oh yeah, well, hey, that trumpet's gonna sound different than smoke alarm. <laughs> My kids and family are here. Somebody probably burned something in the oven or something. Here, hang on. Um I just pause it there, so keep going. Okay. So two things. Um, one is this thing of replacement that God is through with Israel. That is a heresy, very serious heresy, that the church has replaced Israel. Because when you go to Romans 11, and I think that's actually, I'd like to have a discussion with you and go into Romans 11. There's just so much meat there, yep. way more than I could ever sum up in a couple minutes. That's one thing. The second thing is this thing about believing. You do not need to believe in the rapture or even understand the rapture to be ready. Believing will affect how you live. Your belief will affect how you live. But the important thing is, and that's to those of you who are listening, the important thing is that you are prepared, that you are ready, that you're walking in the spirit. And this thing of walking in the spirit is such a key thing to the new covenant. It is, Paul says, if you don't have the spirit, you're none of his. You're not of Christ. And uh, embracing Holy Spirit and walking Holy Spirit, do any of us do it perfectly? No, I don't do it perfectly. But I grow and I want the spirit to consume more of my life and to, to, to be the one who leads me, to be the one who I rely on. And so I guess my call, my cry, my heart for the church is walk in the spirit. If you don't understand who Holy Spirit is, ask God to give you Holy Spirit because he will. He says he will. He promises that. And, uh, you know, you don't need to understand the rapture. I don't want anyone to be fearful um, in order to be ready. But walk in the spirit and watch and be prepared. And that right there is the key. Yep. Amen. I think the only other point I'm going to make is on the issue of imminence. And I'm guessing you don't 
quite hold to the the typical eminence view, which is that at any time, without warning, without any sign, bang, the rapture would take place, and there was no warning to it. Personally, I don't find that to be scriptural. I believe there to be signs and things that will will precede that time, and then just before, it's going to be at the time of maximum pressure uh, that the enemy is going to throw out. That's the point which which we will be taken, and God will pour out His His final right. wrath. That's just my opinion. So the the concept of imminence, you know, Jesus could come back at any moment. Yeah, technically he could, but he mm -hmm. did give us the warnings that there will be signs mm -hmm. preceding that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's safe to say we need to be ready because it'll be yep. like a thief, no question. But at the same time, we have to be watching for those signs and yep. recognize those signs. Don't don't just jump on every little thing that you think is prophecy. You know, I understand like the peace agreements that took place. Very interesting. But not necessarily prophecy. Now, we know peace is going to be prophesied. So it's like, put it on the back shelf. Think about it. Let's see now if this develops. Let's see if there's more to this. But if nothing develops, well, that wasn't it. And having an attitude of openness and not making huge blanket claims that right now in this moment, you know, we're it. This is it. This is the last days. This is it. We're in that moment. We don't know until the signs begin to manifest. That's what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. He said, when you begin to see the signs manifest, then you know that this generation is a generation that will see it, and it will all be fulfilled in that generation. And i that's how I look at it. So I'm always watching, eyes wide open, interesting things happening, no question. We have some stuff happening in, in our generation that is very oh interesting. The way the geography, like the way the nations, we have Erdogan in the north, uh, or even Afghanistan. There's northern kingdoms that absolutely could march on on Israel and and fulfill some of the precursor um, things. So it's just eyes wide open. So keep watching, but don't. And we have we have Israel, the Valley of Dry yep. Bones, yep. back in their nation. They're again a nation. <laughs> there's no life in them. It's time, you know. There's a time coming when God's going to blow on them and they're going to be revived. I believe that's yep. speaking about a spiritual life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, did you see what was put up in front of the UN in New yeah. York? That yeah. beast. So, some people were immediately going, oh, that's the beast of Revelation. It's not necessarily the beast of Revelation, but it mm -hmm. is a, it is a, it's not something that we should think as trivial. Like yeah. that is the type of creature that that mm -hmm. Revelation describes as being mm -hmm. a, a, a uh, snake dragon, okay, or a chimera, or a, a Bashmu in the ancient world. Like, this is demonic stuff, mm -hmm. yep. plain and simple. Yep. And and the devil's bringing these things out because he wants to normalize it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, that's cool. That's art. No, <laughs> that is not <laughs> art. That's not art. <laughs> I can Amen. tell you that. It's not art. Yep. And um, yep. I, I didn't verify this. There was a thread on Facebook that said the the name of it, I guess, was Peace and Safety. But then I heard that was just something on Twitter and wasn't actually that. I it was know. a Guardian of Peace is the official name. Guardian of Peace. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, and truth be told, that is probably in the image of a cherub or close to-ish. And so it's right. But we have to re recognize there are cherubs that fell. So there's demonic. Well, we know yep. the greatest one that's... The adversary was a cherub. So that stuff is. Yep. Yeah. But the good news is we have a king. We have a God who's greater than any 
His name is above every name. And there's a day coming that at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Not only that, he he created those things. So he has greater power than them. (laughs) Amen. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Willard, for doing this. I appreciate the time and I'm sure people will enjoy this. Yep. Always a pleasure. God bless you guys. God bless.